I would just make a sandwich and I'd bite into it. I'm like, wow, this is really oh, quite no. earthy. Oh, no. <laughs> there was definitely mold on it. I didn't even <laughs> think to pay attention. I hope you felt okay after. You may be what you eat, but healthy has a different definition for everybody. From Food Equality Initiative, I'm Sophia Gillespie, and welcome to Free From Podcast. Did you know that 30 to 40% of the food we produce in our food system goes to waste? That means it either goes bad or simply goes uneaten and sits in a landfill decaying. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, that amounts to about $161 billion in 2010, and I can only imagine the amount now, including current inflation levels. Today on Free From Podcast, we'll be talking about food waste, why it's a problem, and what we can do about it. I've decided to bring in Meryl Davis, a good friend from college who has made it her life's work to fight the food fight. Now she works for LinkUp Illinois, which is a program from Experimental Station in Chicago, where she helps match SNAP dollars for fresh produce at farmers markets, co-ops, and grocery stores. So welcome, Meryl. We're excited to have you here. Thank you. Can you tell us about your relationship with food and what really got you interested in the food rights space? Yes, I became interested in food um, during a high school senior project. Mine was on food waste and redistribution, and that, that was my intro into the world of food waste, how much there is in the U.S., um, and efforts to redistribute that to um, people that can use it. So was that something that was just assigned to you, or you picked that? No, I actually picked it. Um, <laughs> I, I don't really remember the exact pathway to talking about food, but I, I do remember it was certainly based on the idea of looking in our refrigerator and, and kind of doing a, a clean out one week and, and realizing, wow, we have a lot of food waste here. Either it's gone bad or actually most of the reason was it had gone bad. And um, that being really frustrating, not just because we had lost all of this food, but also kind of the money um, that had gone into purchasing the time that had gone into cooking it. And so it was a lot of wasted resources, um, you know, each each week or so that we would we would clean out our refrigerators. And my mom was a really big proponent of eating healthy, eating um, plant-based foods. And, and so to see all of that kind of effort be wasted each week kind of sparked the the interest in understanding food waste in other other ways. Wonderful. And I I know I do that myself at my house. I'm like, wow, I forgot that I had this pasta at the back of the fridge. Like Right. <laughs> I think it happens to everyone. It just gets buried behind all the other stuff. Like our fridges are huge. So Exactly. It's true. It's true. So what is considered food waste? Obviously, you know, you're you're thinking of, you know, that pasta that's at the back of the fridge that clearly has mold on it now. But are there other types of food waste? Like what are some of the ones that aren't as commonly thought about? Um, I think, yeah, a friend of mine is always the consumer side, right? The food scraps that we perhaps uh, create when we're cooking, the leftovers that we forget about, the spoiled foods, not just in our refrigerator, but also in the back of our pantries, things like that. Um, but I think uh, perhaps maybe less front of mind is the waste that occurs in grocery stores. And that's most often because of uh, sell-by dates that are then interpreted as, you know, throw-out dates, um, unsold items that, you know, maybe they were not as popular as a store thought that we were going to be. And they end up chucking it for in, in favor of, of creating more shelf space for something else. Um, commercially unfit items like the ugly items or the ones that uh, get 
you know, produce that gets bruised at the at the bottom of a of a box or something. And then also restaurants. Um, restaurants are kind of designed to avoid food waste. So in, in this regard, it's it's pretty minimal. And I, I really respect a lot of the chefs that I spoke to during my high school project, where they said, you know, we, we reuse and and compost a lot of the things that um, are left over. But I think it comes back to that consumer side where maybe you order a meal and it, there's too much and you can't take it home or you don't want to take it home. So there's that that food waste there. And then on farms, um, unharvested foods that may have gone unharvested for multiple reasons. But what comes to mind is the foods that just don't look nice, but are very edible and very flavorful and um there are a lot of organizations and businesses out there that are starting to kind of take advantage of that market and um, quote unquote save those foods and and uh, sell them back. I want to just jump back to what you said about in the grocery stores and those sell by dates. And so there's, you know, there's a ton of different ways that they label it. There's the sell by date, there's the best by date or the best if used before, like they're all slightly different. And, you know, do they mean different things? How do they come up with those dates? And is it really telling you like, this food is bad at this time? Or is it kind of more nuanced than that? <laughs> I did my own little bit of digging and found a really cool podcast that I'll, I'll have to find the name. It's of. best by sell by use by from Planet Money. Basically, the idea was saying that manufacturers created these dates to kind of recommend when a product might be at its peak flavor or uh, nutritional value. And so some of those dates were called best buy, best if consumed by, things like that. Sell by dates were more for stores and the supply chain kind of thing to understand like how long an item had been in their inventory. And so not necessarily tied to quality of food. And then you kind of see some other ones uh, sprinkled around in there. But I think the biggest thing to consider is that there's not a centralized method for dating foods. And uh, the, oh gosh, I think it's the Harvard School. That's Harvard Law School's Food Law and Policy Clinic. They have a whole clinic that studies food dates and what they even mean and trying to create a centralized system so that it is clear, like, does use by actually mean use by or, you know, I'm going to get sick or does it mean it's best by and I've got some wiggle room. And I, I would say using your, your senses to evaluate the items that you might have questions about are the best way to understand if this is perhaps something to unfortunately toss or compost or if you are okay to eat it. Yeah, I remember in college, you had uh, just some milk that said best buy this date. And that had happened like a couple days ago. And I was like, what are you're still drinking that you said, Oh, I haven't opened it yet. So <laughs> it, it lasts longer. Yes, I am definitely known to consume things past their dates. I think Again, using best judgment, using your senses. For example, um, my oat milk, I bought it, you know, on maybe Friday the 2nd and didn't open it until the 6th. But it said, you know, use by, I don't know, the 10th. But because I didn't open it until the 6th, I think there's a little bit more wiggle room on, on that. And uh, for milk, for example, like it goes through a pretty stringent um, pasteurization process that is very technical and, and very safe. So... I think understanding that, again, those dates are often about the quality and not so much whether or not it's gone bad. 
I still <laughs> follow that practice of, you know, using my nose. Yeah. Well, and the internet's a great place as well. I know like I've had some salmon in my fridge, had it in the freezer for a while and I pulled it out to defrost it to eat it and it, it wasn't looking great. And so I, I looked up on the internet and they're like, yeah, probably shouldn't be eating it when in doubt. When in doubt, look it up. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And I would say when in doubt also, don't risk your health. Don't risk your stomach's uh, mm -hmm. response to anything. Why is food waste a problem other than, you know, it costing billions of dollars? You know, what? what is the problem? It's not just money that becomes wasted when you waste food. It's also their environmental impact, the uh, human effort to package or grow or harvest the food. And um, it's just, there are a lot of things behind the scenes that we don't all think about when we're saying, okay, uh, you know, this apple looks a little bruised, I'm just gonna toss it. Um, that's a lot of energy, water, time that kind of goes into, into the landfill when you put the apple in the landfill. And lifting of the veil, if you will, of, of understanding what goes into growing food, what goes into getting food from, uh, production to your table um, and and not being able to see that I think that perhaps is the, is a larger problem and food waste is kind of an example of how the lack of transparency in our food system is detrimental in multiple ways mm -hmm. well and I know we've heard that sentiment about you know kids not wanting to eat their vegetables but if they grow them themselves they're more likely to eat it and I think that can be translated also across to food waste. If you are the one spending all that time and the backbreaking labor to water your corn or whatever you're making, like you're going to be more likely to want to eat every last piece of it. Yeah, absolutely. I think ownership over the path that your food takes um, to you is definitely a way to encourage people to think, all right, like, do I... Can I just eat around the bruise? I've been known to pull some cheese out of the refrigerator that clearly has mold on it and just cutting around it. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> yes, yes, me too. And, you know, sometimes like a mushroom, I get a little bit more nervous about it. If it looks really funky, I'm, I'm less likely to eat it. Um, but I, I think you're right. Like with cheese, you can sometimes hedge around the mold or, or uh, other, other things. Yeah, you can I've also it. been known, which I have prevented this from being a problem um, with my bread, for example, because I'm just one person. I don't, I don't eat a ton of bread and they always come in those massive loaves. So I've started putting it in the freezer <laughs> to help my bread last yes, longer. And it doesn't take hardly any time to thaw out. Right. And like, then it, and it actually tastes fine. Like I thought it would be like mushy or something, but it's, it's pretty basic mm -hmm. or you can toast it of course. But I have been known in the past before <laughs> I discovered that hack I would just make a sandwich and I'd bite into it. I'm like, wow, this is really oh, no. quite earthy. Oh, no. <laughs> so I spit it out. And so, yeah, because there's oh definitely mold on it. I didn't, I didn't even think to pay attention. I hope you felt okay after. <laughs> <laughs> I was fine. I was fine. I've been lucky to not really have any food poisoning yet. But Oh, knock on wood. <laughs> knocked. <laughs> yeah, I think the freezer is definitely your best friend in terms of storage of food and portion control, especially if you're perhaps cooking for one or two. What are some really good, easy beginner steps to reducing our own personal food waste? I think there is a lot of power for the individual to kind of take in terms of controlling food waste. In a grocery store, I would say 
meal planning and meal prepping is a great way to reduce the amount of food that you're even just bringing into your your home. The meal planning um, also helps you better understand, you know, what you're going to eat throughout the week and make sure that you're not buying things that you're not actually going to use later. On kind of the post-prep side, post-cooking side, you can make some great vegetable stock using vegetable scraps. At restaurants, it's a little hard. You don't have as much control over portion control, but you know, bringing a to-go container or asking for a to-go container is a great way to enjoy really good food a second time. You can always compost. I think that finding a commercial composter, if they're available in your area, or even doing your own maybe backyard or community garden, composting is a great way to handle food scraps. To give us some more insight into composting, I've invited David Haken, a retired public school teacher of 28 years, musician, and local volunteer of the Kansas City Drawdown Society. Hi, David. Welcome to Free From Podcast. Thank you, Sophia. I know you're involved in the Kansas City Drawdown Society. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and what are some major goals? Yes, there are uh, drawdown groups uh, all over the world since Project Drawdown announced its findings in 2017. Got 200 scientists together and looked at hundreds of climate solutions and found the top 80 most impactful climate solutions. There were some surprises there. One of them was food waste. And uh, it became the framework for cities doing their sustainability plans and uh, really uh, motivated a lot of groups to get started scaling up those solutions at the community level. So how does food waste play into all of it? Food waste came in at number four, right behind uh, plant-based diet with much higher uh, potential for reduced emissions. Anywhere from a third to 40% of the food produced never is eaten by people. Is this across the world or just in the United States? Worldwide. Wow. What that means is that if we can reduce that, that reduces the need to take forests and turn it into farmland. There's less energy to produce all that food that never gets eaten. Of course, we can also feed hungry people. And then at the household level, food scraps that aren't eaten, that are put into the landfill, get covered up and are anaerobic and produce methane, which is at least 25 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than CO2. I don't think a lot of people know that, I would say, because whenever I think of methane, of course, I'm thinking of cows. Right. But you're saying that the food that we don't eat that we just throw in the landfill doesn't decompose like we think it does. Is that right? That's right. It has to be composted for that to happen, which is another one of the 80 top solutions. And so there's been a lot of work at the community level for uh, composting. And there's been a lot more communities that have curbside compost pickup along with recyclable pickup. It's not just gardeners who are composting to have compost for their garden. San Francisco is like mandatory composting and it's free. It seemed really curious to me until I started reading about what's fueling that is that land is so expensive around San Francisco that if they have to buy land to expand their landfill, it is going to be a huge expense. And it is much, much cheaper to compost all that food waste. Do you happen to know the percentage of food waste in our landfill trash bags versus other trash items? 
No, but uh, when I started uh, composting my food scraps, I didn't think I would notice any difference at all. And I literally went from two bags of trash every week to one. Wow. I had no idea I was throwing out that much food. And I know food waste also weighs a lot. So it takes a lot of manpower to, you know, carry your own trash out to the curb and then have someone else pick it up and then drive it away. All of the energy that gets used. So what are some ways, I guess, you know, more of the, the average people, how can we get more involved in composting? There are two ways to compost. One is uh, the backyard composting. You can actually do pile composting. Food scraps go in there and uh, lawn clippings and leaves. And as long as it gets stirred up so there's oxygen there, uh, produces a little CO2, but uh, you end up with compost that can be added to soil will make the soil pull down more CO2. So you're saying the soil itself can help filter our air. That's right. That's right. That One of the problems with uh, chemical farming is that the life in the soil is killed when they try to kill the bugs and the weeds. And all of that carbon-based life in the soil goes up into the atmosphere, which is why people are so excited about no-till organic farming or regenerative farming. But just a little bit of compost can really um, boost the soil's ability. So people are just putting it on their lawn if they don't have a garden. Yeah, well, I think that's another common misconception, similar to, you know, the cows being the only ones that produce methane. I feel like a lot of the narrative is that composting is really only beneficial for people who garden or have farms. But it sounds like the benefits go beyond that. And you mentioned there was there were two ways to compost. So the first one being having your own piles. What's the second one? Worm composting. Wait, worm composting? That's right. Worm composting produces probably the richest, best compost. I know a greenhouse in town that has a worm bin, and they put some of that compost in water, and they irrigate all of their greenhouse plants with worm tea. (laughs) Worm tea. (laughs) That's beautiful. In Kansas City, we got a grant to get 100 worm bins in people's kitchens. And it's small, so it doesn't take up a lot of space. It's active so that even if you put rotten vegetables and uh, coffee grounds in the day before, you go back in and open the lid and it smells like a forest never smells bad, like your container of food scraps on the counter ready to go out on the curb. Worms are just happy to be inside. You know, these the colonies are happy for years in the same small container. You said there's a bin, right? You just put it in your kitchen somewhere. And then I'm, I'm assuming there's already some sort of dirt in there or soil of some kind. That's right. There's special bedding and you the food in, cover it up, and then once a week, give it a good stirring again to get oxygen everywhere. Wow. And so what kind of things can you feed these worms? Uh, pretty much anything except dairy and meat. I'm just curious, have you seen people start to behave differently when it comes to either their food choices or are they eating different amounts of food? You know, have you seen behavior change? Yeah, I would say that, you know, people are feel better about cooking from scratch because they've got a place they can compost. Because you can't compost the dairy and meat, people are eating that a little less frequently. (laughs) So people 
talk to their friends and family and neighbors about their worm bin in their kitchen, you know, they become more knowledgeable about, well, this is the way that I'm doing my part, being part of the solution for reversing global warming. A lot of people that are experimenting with plant-based diet are also, um, you know, producing some scraps that can easily be worm composted. Who would have thought that worms are the convincing factor to have people become, you know, more vegetarian? In a way, these worms are becoming kind of a household pet. And, you know, it's in a way you'll do anything to make sure your pet is happy and healthy. So even if that means changing your own diet, like that's that's pretty significant, I'd say. What we did when we had the grant is we had people adopt the worm bins because you're adopting a colony of worms. We always want to know how many are in there. And we usually start with about 500 and over. Wow. Several... How big are these bins? <laughs> They're five gallon pails. And you can fit 500 worms? Well, after about three months, they usually double to a thousand. <laughs> and they, they love being all crammed together. They're a colony animal. So they're very happy. And so if someone is going out of town, they find someone who can take care of their worms for them. Worm sitting? Yes. It's a thing now. <laughs> so do they need to be fed every day? No. You can do it uh, twice a week. It kind of just depends on how big the colony is. But they also, they're less active and they don't reproduce as much if there's less scraps going in. And then if there's a time like, you know, you've got a lot of uh, house guests or something and they get more food, then they'll be more active and they'll reproduce more. Wow. So I'm, I'm imagining you have your bin, you have the worms, you have the, the bedding that's already there. Do you have to, you know, scoop out soil every once in a while, like as you add your scraps to it? Yes. After... After three months, it'll start filling up. And if you open it up and the light is on, the worms hide from the light because they don't want to be eaten by birds. And usually, you know, you've got a wooden spoon there and you stir it up to, you know, convince them to go down. And I just use an old coffee cup and scoop out the top couple of inches. And you just sprinkle it in the yard or yeah. somewhere? Yeah, or a flower pot. Yep. Wow. It's fairly low maintenance then. Yeah. It sounds like there's lots of ways that we can be doing better for our planet. Firstly, eating more of a plant-based diet, right? You said that was number three out of 80. And then right after that, number four is reducing our food waste, whether it be through, you know, having worm bins or just eating less or... You know, there's so many places along the food processing journey where food is wasted. One of the things that I started doing too was looking at where food was going bad and really keeping stuff that wasn't going to be good very much longer in a different part of the refrigerator. Well, what I find interesting as well is the way our refrigerators are set up. We have, you know, that drawer, which is supposed to be for produce. But then, you know, I find that I forget about the produce in that drawer because it's behind a, a wall exactly so that's that's where I, I pull it out of that drawer and put it up where it's easier to see and uh, some people do real well with just having a special place where they mark in the refrigerator with a little sign saying eat me first and the other thing that i started doing was really being more thoughtful about cooking to produce leftovers instead of just cooking for one meal I would find stuff that I love to eat that was just as good heated up 
And then I'd have the containers and every single bit of it, whether it's uh, pasta Alfredo or enchiladas or whatever, every bit of it gets put either on my plate and eaten or in a container. Where people have more trouble is when they have kids. It's kids have to learn over a long period of time <laughs> how much food they really are going to eat at that meal. Well, I think that's a life, like you said, it, it does take a long time, but I think even us as adults have a hard time with that. Our eyes are bigger than our appetites. <laughs> yeah, I would say that what I found is that when people are successful taking on one of uh, climate solutions and really seeing, oh my gosh, I'm not having anything go bad this whole month, their reaction is, what's next? And a really good place, there are two good sites uh, to find out about that. One is drawdown.org, and the other is regeneration.org. And both have a lot of really good tips on things that you can do, not just at a personal level, but things to get involved with and support at a community level. Thank you so much, David Haken, for, for coming on Freeform Podcast and sharing with us all your knowledge. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for the work you do. And I'd like to say thank you to Meryl Davis for sharing her advice and love of food. Sponsored by Food Equality Initiative, I'm Sophia Gillespie, and this has been Free From Podcast. Please visit foodequalityinitiative.org to learn more and make a contribution to further our fight for nutrition security and health equity. Thanks for listening.